Hi and welcome to the Aviation Scopecast Flight 001. In this monthly podcast, we'll cover current events that impact the aviation industry. Whether it is manufacturers, airlines, the financial markets, or just little bits and pieces we stumbled upon, all of it has a chance of being featured on here. So who are we, you might ask? Uh, I'm Helen Spro. I'm responsible for the aviation financing sector at Scope Ratings and with a background in structuring and arranging aircraft financing transactions. And I'm Frank Netscher. I work at Scope Analysis where we cover real assets from an equity perspective. And my primary focus is transportation. So together Helen and I aim to get you as enthusiastic about aviation as we are. But at the same time, please keep in mind that our statements reflect our personal opinions and not necessarily Scope's view on the topics covered. With that being said, uh, let's get started. So, aviation today is a result of many decades and even centuries of development. So, Helen and I have therefore decided to take off by diving into a few historical events. Exactly, Frank. Uh, we have dug up a few historical events from the months of September in the past. Uh, so, uh, what's a, a September aviation history worth men mentioning have you found, Frank? Well, um, when thinking about this, uh, the first thing that obviously comes to mind is 9-11. Um, it is when you think of uh, the aviation landscape and you have to come up with a topic that happened in September, I would say it is probably um, at the top of your head for, for almost everybody. And for me, um, actually, I know um, people who are directly affected by the events. And a uh, strange fact is that uh, actually one of the terrorists actually went to the same university that I did at the same time. So um, it wasn't too hard to come up with uh, my top topic here, I'd say. No, that's a very close uh, connection to it, I would say. Have you have you found another like second event as well, Frank, that that's happened in September? Yes, I mean, I didn't want to leave it on that bad a note. So um, another event that um, I came upon when I when I brought sport um, happened actually 109 years ago. And yes, there was aviation, well, not industry, but there was aviation going on even 109 years ago. Um, because uh, a person from Peru, actually a Peruvian, Jorge Javes, uh, he was the first to cross the Alps um, by plane. Um, okay. he, he made this attempt to, to earn a cash price of $20,000. He took off in Switzerland, um, landed in Italy in September 1910. Uh, it took him 51 minutes and um, problem is his plane crashed upon landing. So oh, that, poor okay. guy, <laughs> that poor guy was, was injured, he was conscious, and he was declared the winner of the competition. Oh, at and, least he won, though. Yes, and I could cut it short and say that's it, but actually he died four days later <laughs> due to his injuries. Um, but his famous last words allegedly were higher, always higher. But... Um, so that's a bit um, on, the, on the darker side of things, I would say. <laughs> but um, Helen, you also had a look um, at some events, didn't you? I did. I'm also a competitive like you, Frank. Uh, so I also looked into different competitions that's happened in the past and actually found that on 4th of September in 1936, Louise Taden became the first woman uh, to win the prestigious coast-to-coast -coast Bendix Trophy race. And uh, I thought you might ask me, Frank, so what is the Bendix uh, Trophy race? I, I, um, I was going to ask about what coast, yeah, Europe and, and USA or? Yeah, so like the, the west coast of the US, 
until they flew this uh, or this race was flown from the west coast uh, to the national air air races in cleveland ohio but it was I, a proper flight race I, sorry I've been to ohio yeah yes no i don't want to say anything about ohio i see <laughs> <laughs> so let's leave it at uh, she won good on good on her good yeah on her. yeah so did you also pick up second event yeah, I did. I did find another thing that I thought was quite interesting that happened on the 1st of September 1953. And I find this very fascinating because I often look at YouTube videos of, of it. And in 1953, the first aerial refueling of a jet aircraft happened. And I always find that so fascinating when you when you watch videos of it, how they managed to refuel another jet aircraft using an aircraft. So that happens for the first time in 1953. So slightly before our time, uh, Frank. Slightly, ever so slightly, yeah. but quite a massive event if you if you think about um, all um, military aircraft who have a very limited range and could not um, do probably any missions at all without aerial refueling. So um, yes, quite quite a big and game-changing event. Definitely, for sure. But um, having gone through the history, um, maybe you should go and rewind back to today, so namely September two thousand nineteen. Okay, so on today's episode, we will be covering a broad range of topics from the impact of oil prices on the aviation industry and um, also Boeing's latest troubles to, to a general take on the current state of the aviation industry. So, Helen, for now, over to you. Thanks, Frank. Um, yes, yeah, so we'll, we'll start then with the oil prices. Um, and oil, oil prices are uh, quite important to me, and uh, not just because I'm Norwegian, but also because it's such an import has such an important impact on the aviation industry. So I spend a lot of time monitoring uh, oil prices. Uh, there might be a slightly conflict of interest here, uh, considering that uh, the higher the oil prices are, uh, the better for the Norwegian oil fund, but at the same time, the worse for the aviation industry. Uh, so I don't know if you're aware, Frank, but in 2018, uh, airlines fuel bills actually accounted for more than 23% of airlines uh, operating expenses. Okay. I mean, I knew it was an important factor and, um, but even with that knowledge, I, I mean, that number is strikingly high. Mm, it is. And if you, if you consider at the same time that in 2018, the fuel prices were actually relatively low looking at historical prices. And as a comparison number in 2012, when the jet fuel was um, about $111 per barrel, uh, it actually accounted for 40% of uh, the airline's operating costs. Oh so, yeah. So um, changes in oil prices therefore have a massive impact on airlines' profitability, and uh, the reason that we're focusing on air, air uh, sorry, the reason that we're focusing on oil prices today is, of course, because of the drone attacks on two Saudi Arabian state-owned oil facilities that we saw last week, because that attack actually wiped out uh, around five percent of the world's oil supply. And with a decrease in supply uh, to that large, uh, large extent, of course, has a massive impact on oil prices, which again could threaten the, the airline's profitability if this uh, lasts for a longer period. 
But hang on, didn't you, um, I mean, I, I, I'm pretty sure I read it, but didn't you uh, not long ago publish a piece um, where you were saying that the oil prices would remain moderate and therefore be <laughs> positive for airlines in, in 2019 and also looking forward? If I would have known that you have such a good memory, Frank, uh, I would have been slightly more careful. Uh, but you're completely right. Uh, in July, my colleague Marlon and I, we actually analyzed the oil price environment and forecasted that uh, there will be a natural cap resulting from high supply, which will keep moderate oil price, price levels uh, for the short to medium term. And that being said, we still, uh, we still believe that will be the case for 2019. Of course, we see higher oil prices now, that 5% of the supply has been taken off the market. Um, and the oil prices have actually increased rapidly. Um, the day before the attack on the Saudi Arabian oil uh, facilities, um, crude uh, oil was priced $60 a barrel. That was on the 13th of September, uh, the day before the drone, drone attack. But on the 15th of September, the prices was uh, $69 a barrel. And when I checked today, um, on the 19th of September, it's actually gone back to $64 a barrel again. So when forecasting oil prices, you look at supply and demand, and also likely factors that impact this supply-demand balance in the foreseeable future. So neither Marlon nor I uh, could foresee that an attack like this one um, that we saw last week would happen. So let, let's just say we didn't exactly take the drone factor into consideration. No, that would be uh, a bit uh, tough a challenge for drone analysts. I, I, I hear you, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's <laughs> the good old shock part in the external shock. So it has a, definitely its justification. So, um, I mean... Though I did read that, that Saudi Arabia is reportedly close to restoring more than two-thirds of the oil production that was lost during the attack. So does that impact your view on the oil price movement in the short term? Definitely. The fact that we think that it still is likely that the supply-demand um, balance will be restored uh, relatively quickly also support that. When we forecasted the oil price for 2019, uh, which we forecasted to be between 60 and 70 um, dollars a barrel average for 2019, we of course considered that there are certain factors um, that can happen. Uh, things can happen in the market, like the drone attack that we saw now last week. But as long as this isn't, um, uh, if I could call it a, su a sustainable um, decrease in uh, in supply, we still believe that the supply will pick up again, and we'll still see this uh, a similar average, sixty to seventy dollars a barrel for two thousand and nineteen. Um, and if that is the case, then this is still uh, a credit positive for the industry overall. I don't know, Frank, what was your impression? Do you think that this one-time event um, will only shortly impact the prices? Or do you, do you have an opinion about if this will have a longer-term impact on the industry? Mm, I mean, it's rather hard to say. I, I think what is an issue is the, the increased uncertainty in, in the Middle East in this, this specific case. And this might simply accelerate the, the, the timeline for the US, but also for Brazilian experts to dominate global supply. Um, we are already watching the USA surge, the experts, and I expect these events may simply lead to an even faster growth than, than we previously expected. Mm, yeah, that's a very good point, Frank, actually. Um, 
yes, as we, as we know from the past, oil price movements are very hard to predict. So I believe the most important thing to keep in mind uh, is that oil prices are volatile. And for airlines and investors, it's important to consider this when evaluating the risk of the industry or, or a transaction. So um, it's limited how interesting oil prices are, if you're not Norwegian. Uh, so maybe we should move on, Frank. <laughs> Good call. Um, so the German perspective, uh, no. Um, <laughs> the second topic is uh, actually Boeing, uh, as we said in the introduction, and um, the question of just how many problems are too many. I mean, you have, obviously, it's it's in the news all over, you have the 737 MAX grounded, you don't have a firm commitment to potential 797, then you have issues arising with the engine suppliers, you have the 7778, which is now seemingly shelved for now, and now you have a cargo door being blown open during um, the final testing of the 777X, so I mean, come on. I, like, are we talking like literally, like blown out, like explosion style, or are we more like talking it cracked open in some no. way? No, we are, we are talking like like Hollywood explosion style <laughs> blowout. I mean, obviously none of us were there, but the the phrasing was that the cargo door blew out, not not cracked open. So this happened during a high pressure test, a high pressure stress test, uh, stress being the key part here. And um, I mean, luckily those tests are being undertaken on the ground, and uh, so nobody was was injured, and because on the ground is where you perform these tests. For a reason, apparently, I would add. Yeah, indeed. I mean, and on top of that, delays had already been piling up for the whole Triple Seven X program, and Boeing has by, um, has by now been forced to postpone the first flight to 2020. And now this event, while it further reduces the likelihood that those deliveries to airlines will actually start in 2020, and okay, but that's only one part because don't even get me started on the on the on the ground at Triple uh, on the ground at Seven Three Seven Max. Oh yeah, I know. Uh, yeah, the whole market have been talking about that for quite some time already. I don't know. Like, do you do you know what is the current timeline um, regarding when the Max will enter back into service? You you mean the official version or, or the one that that is currently expected? And um, let's just say hit maybe the truth, uh, Frank. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, originally uh, Boeing wanted to to submit the the certification materials to to U.S. regulators this month, so September 19, and at the moment uh, Boeing is calling it an iterative process. So I mean, they're still talking about return to service for for early fourth quarter, but. But yeah, yeah, I knew yeah. there would be a but in there somewhere. There, there's a, a rather large one, I'd say. So, so but um, uh, meanwhile, um, the airlines that have removed the 737 Max flights from the schedules, they have removed them up until New Year's, and um, many carriers, I believe, to now be hoping for an early January return. And also, um, the European Aviation Service Agency um, they confirmed that it intends to question Boeing itself. And to and to conduct their own test flights. So rather than simply um, accept whatever any potential approval by the FAA, so from the U.S. side might might happen. Yeah, the the EASA statement that will certainly add to the timeline. And to be honest, I'm actually quite surprised that in the past that hasn't actually been um, been the process. That it's it's good that EASA trusts the FAA, but um, yeah, it's also important to. Uh, 
to properly regulate it themselves as well. So I'm actually quite happy to hear that, even though it adds to the timeline. Mm. And it's, it has been grounded for quite some time now, hasn't it? So, I mean, the the airlines are certainly not uh, taking any deliveries at the moment. No, they're not, and, and it's a very good point. I mean, it is um, basically it has basically been exactly uh, six months, I believe, since the grounding started. And by now, I guess the latest numbers were that you have up to 250 uh, max parked at various Boeing storage locations. And, and all of them, I mean, you will have to check them again before you can hand over them to the respective customers. And in addition to that, there, I believe there are close to 400 now that had already been delivered to, to the operators. So all in all, you are currently looking at, um, yeah, close to 650 uh, 737 MAX that are in storage. And Boeing is still producing 42 new, new ones um, each and every month. But like 650 aircraft plus 42 a month, like they must be running out of storage space soon. They, they are, they are, they are getting creative. I, I believe they even took uh, some some um, parking lots for their uh, employees and um, <laughs> um, made them storage locations. True, true story. Please are creative though. I'll give them that. Yeah, under pressure, mm -hmm. creativity under pressure. You you know the feeling. <laughs> Definitely. No, like we've also like discussed this a lot in the past, as you know. And as I've said in the past, and published a piece on as well, is that I still believe in the long run that the value of the Max will not be affected by these events. And I'm also quite certain that the aircraft will get back into operations. The airlines airlines will have restored uh, confidence in the aircraft model. So from from an aircraft value perspective, I would say I'm not very worried about the model, even though the timelines timeline seem to be lagging a bit. Um, but the airlines are, of course, struggling uh, with the extra cost related to the groundings. And Boeing will, will also, and they have already, been hit by this uh, these costs. But I, I still personally have a strong belief in the aircraft model itself and in its future. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. I mean, um, do you need a more narrow body? If the answer is yes, you're either buying a, a an Airbus A320 Neo or you buy a 737 Max. There, there is no real substitute. Um, but I say, um, looking at the time, enough about Boeing and the current struggles. Um, but Helen, what about the industry in general? Where are we um, in, in a cycle? I, it's always uh, difficult to predict where we are in the cycle, but I don't know if... Uh, my question. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> good question, Frank, good question. Uh, I don't know how many uh, of our listeners have read our Outlook for 2019, which we published back in November 2018. But in the Outlook for 2019, uh, we, uh, we forecasted and expected 2019 to be another good year uh, for the industry. But we also forecasted that a price correction uh, was close at hand. And from what I see in the market these days, I actually believe that this price correction that we anticipated has slowly started. Um, personally, I think we've reached the top of the cycle at, that we're slowly moving uh, towards a downturn. Um, but it, it's difficult to, uh, to say because you see a lot of read a lot of different signals in the market. Um, I don't know, what was your impression, Frank? Do you see anything else in the equity market compared to the credit market where I keep my focus? 
No, not really. I mean, the, the, the assets are the same, and I think that the problems are, well, or the challenges, if you want to be a bit polite, um, of the asset class are comparable, no matter if you're talking equity or debt structures. There is, is abundancy of, of liquidity in the markets, um, and we are experiencing drastic yield compression. So investors um, that are in the hunt for higher returns on the equity side they are now more and more willing to accept lessees with the lower credit ratings, so thereby taking on, on more risk. Yeah. Yeah, does that mean you're sort of expecting to see a crisis, or are you more um, optimistic, uh, optimistic that we'll see like a natural cor correction that will take place in sort of a slow and stable pace? Yeah, I, I, I agree with the letter. Um, a more correction than a crisis. I mean, we are in an environment where, where lease rates have decreased and the amount of money as, that an operator will receive for selling an aircraft is actually increasing. So, so all this points to, to an overheated market. Um, but what's your take on the, the, the market conditions themselves from, from, from a credit side of things? No, I completely agree with you, Frank. Uh, we're being very agreeable uh, today, but I do believe uh, we will see a correction. Um, and I'm willing to go as far as to say that it has already started. Um, so while I think that we'll see a correction, I don't think it will res uh, result in a crisis in the industry, just like, like you also said. But of course, from a credit risk perspective, um, if airlines are defaulting and investors invested um, based on inflated aircraft prices, then, then some are bound to experience a loss in a downturn. Um, but a crisis in the sense, sense of a proper crisis that will hit the whole industry across uh, borders and aircraft models, I don't believe is a very high probability. But of course, the, avia the aviation industry is a part of the global economy. And if we see a crisis in the global economy, the, this will also hit the aviation industry. And as my analysis suggested, uh, that the industry, uh, the industry, aviation industry, is in a vulnerable position at the moment, if we were to see any global, yeah, global hits in any fashion or form. Yeah, I think vulnerable is a fitting description, and I believe you're completely right there. I mean, just, just look at the current airline defaults, and not even considering the state of Norwegian Air Shuttle, but the, the industry does indicate that, there are that they are struggling um, more than, I think, a few years ago. But um, the financial states of airlines, I think that would have to be a topic for another time. Yeah, that would, it would be a very long uh, flight episode. Uh, to put it like that. Um, yeah, uh, just before we round off, Frank, I actually also read in the <laughs> read in the news uh, yesterday or the day before um, that some airlines have stopped selling the tickets for the last row in um, on the A320 Neo. So it's not just Boeing uh, apparent, uh, experiencing issues apparently. So I'm not sure you can beat the 777X Hollywood explosion event, as you so nicely called it. But apparently, due, what I read is due to the aircraft central gravity envelope, the passengers are not allowed to sit in the last row anymore. Yeah, and the, the fun fact, well, I'm not even sure if fun is the correct word, but the fun fact is that I had this happen to me earlier this year. Um, well, not directly to me, but um, I happened to be on a flight 
that had these these issues. So before takeoff, the the captain said that they will um, have to move some passengers around. So right before takeoff, um, the crew had the passengers move from the last row, and they moved them somewhere between I don't know row ten and twenty. Wherever there was some space, I think we were going from Munich to Berlin, so there was never a lot of space, but they, they moved them somewhere around. And once they were reseated, um, the captain told us, okay, the lights are now literally green, I would say, and, and off we took. And what struck me at that time is that, I mean, okay, I'm trying to be polite here. Um, we're moving around like, let's say, 300 kilograms um, of people mass, and we're moving them from row 32 to row 20. And this shifts the weight of an, of an aircraft that weighs probably, the airline or the aircraft geeks will probably lynch me for this, but I'd say 70 tons, I would say. And you move 300 kilos, 20 meters to, to the front of the plane, and suddenly all your gauges are green. Yeah, so yes, I, I remember this experience, and I, I well, I forgot a bit about it, but then I read the same news as, as you do because we probably have the same newsletters, anyways. <laughs> but yeah, I, I read it about Lufthansa, and I was like, hold on, that happened to me months ago. I'm not an aircraft engineer, I have to admit, but <laughs> it sounds it sounds a bit peculiar that you can yeah you can just shift let's say six people to. Uh, I mean, to... how much? I mean. How much in the angle of the aircraft does that alter? We're both not so. Please, engineers, if you're listening, <laughs> yeah. you you have seven tons of mass. You move three uh, three hundred kilograms, twenty five meters um, from south to north. How much does your angle decrease or increase? Please um, leave your comments below. And I, anyways, I think um, this this. Yeah, let this to the end today's episode. And as I said, please, um, not only burning this topic, but please feel free to leave your comments and uh, or requests for topics actually below, uh, or simply reach out to to Helen or myself um, via LinkedIn. Yeah, we we hope you enjoyed this um, episode, and please spread the word the word if you like this format and its content. Um, and we hope that you'll be tuning in again for our next flight 002. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Bye.